Welcome to Frontline Church South OKC Sermon Podcast. Each week we will have new sermon content from Sunday mornings, both video and audio options. Please visit south.frontlinechurch.com for more information. If you have any questions, need prayer, or have any other needs at all, please email hello at frontlinechurch.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. Stand with me for the reading of God's word. The scripture for today's sermon comes from John 15, verses 1 through 11. The word of God speaks to us. I am the true vine, and my Father is the wine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples." As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is God's word to us. Thanks be to God. Hey, thanks, Stacy. Hey, good morning, guys. Uh, if we've not had the chance to meet yet, my name is Andrew, and I get to serve as one of our pastors here. So good to have you this morning. So fun to celebrate baptisms. We have two more that we get to celebrate later in the 11 o'clock, so it'll be super fun. Uh, hey, maybe you're here today, and you're here because you're dragged along by friends or by family. Uh, maybe you're trying to figure out where you stand with uh, Christianity, with Jesus. Uh, I know a lot of us have experience with church. Uh, growing up in Oklahoma like I did, there's a lot of experience that you might carry in with you. So man, I just want to say to you, if you're kind of in a place where you're not sure where you're at with Jesus or with church or with Christianity, welcome to you. We're really glad that you're here. Uh, There's not any question that you have that's off limits. We don't know all the answers to stuff, but we really are committed uh, to wanting to sit down with you and process and give you all the space in the world to wrestle with the claims of Jesus. Amen? So it's good to have you. Thanks for being with us today. You've already heard us say this, but we are starting a new series today. And just a little bit about that. So we as a church love, our bread and butter is to take 
books of the Bible and work our way through those books. We have uh, been through the Gospel of Mark. We did a year, 364 days to be exact, uh, in the Gospel of Mark, working our way through the story of the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. Uh, Then we moved from that to the book of Jude, which was wild and crazy, four weeks unpacking one of the shortest books in the Bible. And coming out of both of those books, we felt the need for a series that showed people what it looks like to follow Jesus. Mark is all about... Uh, asking us the question, who do you say Jesus is? And when you say, I believe that Jesus really is the Messiah, the the long-awaited king who is coming to forgive us and to make all things new and to bring life to our world, when you make that profession, now what? What does it look like to follow him? What does it look like to be in his life? And then we moved into the book of Jude. And the thing about Jude that was really interesting is twice it said that God keeps us in his love till the end. But then once it says for us to keep ourselves in his love. So God keeps us and we keep ourselves in his love. In other words, there's a passive act of being a Christian where we just receive the keeping, preserving love of God. But there's an active thing that we do as well where we actually preserve or persevere rather in the faith and keep ourselves in his love. And so one of the things that we wanted to do is start this series on rhythms of grace to show you and I what it looks like to follow Jesus? What does it look like to build a life around Jesus? What does it look like to be with Jesus, to learn to keep ourselves in his love? So over the next few weeks during our summer series, that's what we're going to be doing. It's not through a book of the Bible, uh, but we're going to be looking at different passages and different ancient spiritual practices that the church has always put in place to help us abide in Jesus. So hopefully this will be really helpful for you. I'm really excited to jump in. and I just want to today give you the why. Why do we do this before we get into the nitty-gritty next week of these different practices? Why? Why do we need this in our lives? So let me pray for us. Father, I pray that you would meet with us today and um, this call on our life to abide in you. I pray today that you would do a deep work. I pray today where we feel guilty for all the ways that we failed or we feel like we are Um, unable to do the many, many things that you call us to, and we're kind of driven by shame. Today, we pray that there would be not toxic shame, but a shame that's healthy that drives us to you. A shame that says, hey, we need your grace. (laughs) We need to be clothed by you. We need to be helped. So today, we we don't want to lean in by our own strength and power. We really want to lean in by the power of the Holy Spirit. So would you meet us today? Would you shape us? And would you form us? In Jesus' name, amen. Dying is never, ever easy, and dying is always tragic, but they say that the best way to die is with an illness that has a date attached to it. Do you know what I mean by that? It's when the doctor looks you in the eye and says, you only have a few months left to live, and here's why, or you only have a few weeks left to live, and here's why. It's still tragic and it's still hard, but they say that that's the best way to die. And here's why, because we're really talking about the difference between a sudden death and a death that can actually be planned for a little bit, a delayed death. Like I love to ride my bike. I've over the last year or so become a cyclist that's kind of obsessed with riding my bike. And I think all the time because of crazy Oklahoma drivers that this could be my last day, you know? And one of, one of these guys in a big Ford F-250 that's mad that I'm on a bike for some strange reason is gonna honk his horn and hit me and I'm gonna die and that's it. I won't be able to say any final goodbyes or plan for anything. It's just I kind of live with that, ah, this could happen any day now, right? 
But there's a difference when you have a date that says, in probably six months, you will no longer be with us. And as tragic as that is, what that enables you to do is do some planning, and it enables you to have some final conversations and actually have an intentional way to step into your death. Uh, One of the women that did this, in my opinion, just really beautifully, was a woman that my wife was exposed to and followed on Instagram, a Christian woman and mom and wife uh, named Jennifer Naraki. You may have heard of this woman. She tragically died of cancer in 2019, but she spent the last remaining months of her life intentionally dying. Uh, She wrote letters to each member of her family for the day that she died. She created a treasure box for her boys that had cards for major life events that she was going to miss out on. She wrote them a card telling them where true hope comes from. She wrote them various letters reminding them of peace through the process. And one of the most heart-wrenching things, she even made a, a clay imprint of her thumb so that her little boys could hold a piece of her hand whenever they needed to. I mean, this woman filled the last few months of her life with profound intentionality and died, though it was tragic, though it was horrible, died really, really well. And I thought about those letters that she wrote, and can you imagine receiving a letter from your spouse or from your parent that was the last words that she would give, the final discourse, if you will. Like, here are the things that I want you to hold on to. Here are the things that I want you to remember in your dark day, in the seasons of struggle. Here's the thing that I want you to grasp and know and hold on to. And in light of that, I want you to think about what we just read together a moment ago when we stood up to read John 15. Think about those words in that context. John 15 is known by scholars and theologians as the final discourse of Jesus. What's interesting about the words that we just read is that these are some of the last words that Jesus would hand his disciples, that he would communicate to his disciples. And he's He has just left the upper room. He's making the short journey over to the Garden of Gethsemane, where in a matter of hours, he's going to be arrested and held on a mistrial and then executed the following day. And he will not have another conversation with his disciples until his resurrection. These are the last words that Jesus would give. This is his final discourse. And so imagine if you have moments left to live and you're going to write something or you're going to speak something to your disciples, what do you want them to say? The most, or what do you want to say to them? What's the most important thing that you want them to remember? Your dying words. With that concept in mind, let's read again John 15, verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that doesn't bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my 
love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Now, did you notice a a word that was repeated again and again and again? What was the word? Abide. No other text of scripture that I'm aware of in the New Testament does Jesus repeat himself with such clarity and vigor again and again, 10 times in seven verses. Jesus says the word abide. Now, this is fascinating for two reasons. One is in the ancient world, as someone is writing something down, they didn't have a way to italicize or bold something to emphasize it. So what they would do is they would bring in repetitive nature where they would just say the same thing again and again and again. And it was also a teaching tool. And here, in Jesus's last words before his death on a cross to his disciples, the words that he's emphasizing again and again is for you and I to abide in him. If you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, this is the greatest call on your life to abide in Jesus. Now, here's the interesting context here. I don't want you to miss this. There's something profound and powerful about the good news of the gospel that's being said that often we miss over in John 15. Uh, Throughout the Old Testament, the people of Israel are again and again referred to as the vine. In other words, God the Father is, is taking this vine called Israel, his chosen special people, and he's planting them in the ground. And his hope was for this vine to bear beautiful fruit so that they could uh, create this good, amazing wine and offer that wine to the world. It's a metaphor, if you will, for God's heart for his people to be faithful to him and to be beautiful and salt and light in the world and offer something special. And yet again and again, what we read in the Old Testament is that Israel as the vine had failed. Israel as the vine, instead of producing good fruit, they'd produced rotten fruit. Instead of offering something beautiful to the nations, they'd actually offered the exact same thing that the nations were doing. They looked just like the pagan world around them. And so again and again, rather than being this fruitful vine, they failed as the vine. And yet here in John 15, 1, did you catch what Jesus does? He actually grabs a hold of this ancient metaphor about Israel, and he says, hey, I am the true vine. In other words, where Israel has failed to be faithful, I have arrived as the true vine, the true Israel, if you will. And this is one of the the biggest themes in John's gospel is that Jesus, where Israel's failed, Jesus has been faithful. And so what's so crazy about this is Jesus is telling you and I, hey, even though you have failed to do what the heart of the Father was for your life, I have arrived on the scene and I have done all the things that the Father has hoped that his people would do. Where you've sinned, I've been obedient. Where you failed, I have been faithful. And now it's by grace that God comes to us and he says, I want to attach you to me. And instead of this being primarily about you and your faithfulness, now the story is about me and my faithfulness on your behalf. And you're actually connected now to this vine and my life is pulsating through your life. And even though you were dead, now you have life in me. And even though you were faith, faithless and, and full of failure, now you can be fruitful because of me. 
What a powerful metaphor, isn't it, for our Christian life that we were dead and now we're attached to the vine and it's his faithfulness that matters, not ours. So no matter what you hear over the next few weeks, I hope that you realize that where we have failed, Jesus is the true vine and he has brought the fruitfulness that you and I have failed to bring. But I also hope you, you grasp and capture the fact that though Jesus is the true vine, you and I are now attached to him and we have something to do as a response. That we are actually called to abide in him. Now, this is a little bit where the metaphor breaks down. Like, you don't have to go out to your trees outside and say, branches, stay on the tree. I mean, maybe you do like in a winter storm or something, but you don't have to command the branches to abide in the tree. They just do that by nature. But you and I, we are often drifting away, aren't we? And so as these branches, we're told again and again, hey, don't cut yourself off. Abide, abide, abide in the vine. What does that mean? What does it mean to abide? Here's what it means. It means that you and I learn over time to make our home in God. It's to be in God, to live in God, to have God and who he is encompass our entire life, to learn to make our home in God. It's to surrender ourselves wholly, fully, our mind and our body and our emotions and our heart and our wills to the love of the Father, and to allow his will to shape our lives. That's what it means to abide. And so in light of the need and the call on your life and on my life to stay remained and connected and make our home in God, just four brief things that I want you to see from John 15, four things that are hopefully going to shape our series over the summer. Here's the first one. Notice the refrain, abide in Jesus. Now, I've already mentioned this. This is said 10 times, abide, abide, abide. You cannot read John 15 and walk away and be like, what does Jesus care about in this passage? It's obvious. He wants us to abide, but why? Why is he so like hours before his death, he wants to say this word 10 times to us? Well, here's why. A couple of things to think about. First, it's actually impossible for you and I to bear fruit apart from abiding in Jesus. You cannot be fruitful apart from abiding in Jesus. Notice what he says in verse four. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Friends, God doesn't save you and then just kind of like kick you out of the house and be like, good luck, I hope it goes well out there and I'll just be over here disconnected from you if you need me, do all the right things and just I'll be off your back. He actually releases us into a new life that's profoundly connected to him so that we can be fruitful. If you're a follower of Jesus, you cannot do anything of value eternally or anything good at all for the kingdom disconnected from Jesus is why he emphasizes it. The second reason why he emphasizes it is because bearing fruit, listen to this, is how we prove that we actually are real disciples to Jesus. How do we know that we really are following Jesus? Well, look at what he says in verse eight. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and look at this, so prove to be my disciples. We noticed in the book of Jude, didn't we, how always among the people of God, there are people who profess faith in Jesus and are not actually Christians. 
and people who profess faith in Jesus and continue on in abiding love with Jesus. There's always true Christians and false Christians side by side, and it's sometimes difficult to know. And Jesus is saying, how do you know that you really are one of my disciples? You abide in me and you bear fruit. And when you abide in me and bear fruit, you're actually proving that you really are a disciple of Jesus. Have you ever had a friend walk away from Jesus and you wonder like, were they ever saved or were they not? Friends, when you, when you cease to abide in Jesus and you cease to produce the fruit that comes from abiding in Jesus, you're not proving that you're a disciple any longer. You're actually proving that you're not a disciple. It's heavy, but it's true. And then here's the third reason why he emphasizes this is because he's warning us of what happens to branches who don't abide. Look at what he says in verse two. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away. There's sort of like judgment language in mind when he says that. Look at it again at verse six. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown in the fire, and burned. Okay, let me, let, let me pause. I know that that's heavy, but friends, here's the point. That abiding in Jesus and bearing fruit is not something for the really mature Christians to do. It's just something that Christians do. Does that make sense? Like sometimes you'll look at someone and go, oh, they're awfully serious about Jesus and I hope they don't get a little wonky and too serious. And I just want you to know, this is what the call of the Christian journey is towards. It's towards remaining in his love and abiding in Jesus. And if we do not do that, then we are proving that we never were his disciples in the first place. It's a significant deal, which is why Jesus again and again and again, hours before his arrest, is emphasizing the need to abide. And that leads me to the second thing I want you to see, which is the threat. And the threat that you and I face in our journey of discipleship is becoming at home in the world. So if abiding in Jesus is making our home in God, then the opposite of abiding in Jesus is learning over time to make our home in the world. And when I say make our home in the world, I don't mean the earth because you're kind of weird if you don't make your home on the earth, right? We all have a physical address. Some, some of us ha- ha- have an address where it's like, this is where I live. This is the, 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 the place that I reside. The goal of the Christian journey, friends, is not to like somehow be disconnected from the earth. The goal of the Christian journey isn't to float away into heaven and live out in the clouds one day. Remember, the story of the Bible is a story that starts on the earth and ends on a renewed, redeemed, earth. We live here. We make our home here. And so I don't mean to make our home in this world is to somehow disconnect ourselves from planet earth. What I mean by the way this world, this way, I'm sorry, the way the the word world means, that's a little bit, bit of a mouthful to say, is to think of the world the way that John describes it again and again. The world as John describes it is the systems and the structures and the disordered loves and the disordered desires, and the vision of the good life, and the philosophies of people who are opposed to Jesus, and the way of life that they're offering you and I. That's what the world means. The world is the opposite of the kingdom of God, and it's the opposite of the good life as defined by Jesus. And here's the challenge, friends. The challenge of your journey and my journey in Jesus is to somehow live here in the world, but not be shaped and formed in the way of the world. It's to somehow have an address here and to interact with people and to be present and faithful here in this world, but to not be of 
the world. And something that many times is not said in Christian circles, and I wish would have been told to me earlier on in my discipleship, is that the Christian journey is actually a really dangerous one. Because you and I carry out our Christian journey in this place called the world, or as Jesus described it, a place where to follow Jesus is to go on the narrow path that leads to life. And everybody we know, so many people in our world are going on the easy path that leads to death and dysfunction. Well, one of the earliest uh, parables, in fact, I think it's the first parable that Jesus gives, uh, is in, um, it's in Mark chapter 4, and it's another agricultural parable. Jesus loved to use agricultural metaphors to describe life with Jesus. And so he's using this parable about how the good news of the gospel gets planted in different types of soil, and the different responses that you and I have is, uh, is kind of like really indicative of what's going on in our world. Notice one of the things that he says in Mark 4. I just want to read it to you. He says, and others are the ones sown among thorns, and they are those who hear the word, but notice the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enters in and choke the word. And it proves what? Unfruitful. Instead of being fruitful and faithful, it proves unfruitful. Think about those three things, cares of the world, deceitfulness of riches, and desires for other things. We might as well put that on our American dollar bill, right? We might just put that on our foreheads and say, to be an American is to embrace the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things. Friends, every single thing about your life and my life, you you know this to be true, has a gravitational pull to those three things, that you and I live in a world that is not neutral, that isn't like, hey, you know, you can just kind of float through life and be totally fine. We live in a world that is actively trying to shape you and form you and guide your loves and your desires. And the thing about being human is that we all long to have a home. We all want to abide. We are abiding creatures. You cannot be a human and not be an abiding creature. You're constantly, it's like you, in your heart, you've got this homing beacon and you're constantly looking for a place to reside, a place where you can find meaning and significance and pleasure and identity and fulfillment. Or to use an old Hebrew word, we're all searching for shalom. And our options in this world is that we can either find our home in God or we can find our home in this world. And the world is not neutral, far from it. And in fact, how you and I choose to abide or let me say it this way, the habits that you put in place and the rhythms that you build out in your life and the things that you surround yourself and where you choose to abide and reside profoundly affect and shape and form or deform your version of what the good life is, your version of where true home and ultimate home can be found. Like, think about the things that exist in our world and how they shape you. Let me give you just a couple of examples. Has anybody seen the documentary on Netflix, The Social Dilemma? Raise your hand. You seen that? Okay, you need to repent today and go home and watch that documentary. Uh, Go do it today. It's really good. But it says something that most of us, I think, realize and know. It basically is a documentary that, that shows how social media, by the very people who created it, they're the ones who are being interviewed, social media is designed to nurture addiction in order to maximize and manipulate people's views and emotions 
and behavior. You feel this. You know this. Do you not? How you and I are actually the product of social media. By the way, if anything is free and you're able to use it, it's because you're the product that's getting sold. And so the idea here is that we actually connect to a world of social media as a platform for us that we actually think is not forming or shaping us. And the whole goal of it, the reason why it's so effective and powerful is because it has a transformative effect on our thinking, our loves, and our desires. Some of us, we feel passionately about the things that we do because of the stuff that we're exposed in social media, both for good and for ill. Uh, another example of something that might seem just irrelevant but shapes us, uh, I, I'm embarrassed to admit it, but my favorite email newsletter that I receive is something called Huckberry. Uh, Huckberry is a newsletter that maybe you've seen it, maybe not, but it's infrequent and it's elegantly designed, and I feel totally content and happy with my life until I open up that email. And when I open up that email, it has all these gear and gadgets and adventure stuff and cool clothing and all this stuff. And I look at it and I'm like, I am miserable. I hate my life. I live a sad, boring life. If I bought this, I would live a happy life. And it sounds stupid, but that's exactly what happens. Do you have that thing in your life? Uh, maybe, Maybe it's REI. Like you walk into REI and you're like, I don't even camp, but I need all the camping stuff now. You know, or you go to a mall. Does anybody go to malls anymore? Is that a thing? Yeah, so if you go to, you know, Amazon is so much better, but you go to a mall and all of a sudden you're like looking into the window and you're like, I think I need this for happiness. I don't know what it is for you, but my point is our world is constantly holding out invitations. Hey, buy this, purchase that, live this way, appear this way, do this thing, and you will have the life that you're craving. Now contrast that with this. I show up on a Sunday and I'm called to worship. All of a sudden, my eyes are lifted off of my life. My eyes are lifted to God. And then we sing truths about Jesus' pursuit of me when I was dead. And that I actually do want him to be my all in all. That I actually do want a life that's wrapped up in God. And then we watch little kids get baptized, and it makes me think about, hey, when I was 13 and pretended to be a Christian and was just really good at playing the religious game, Jesus made my heart come alive. And I remember getting into the water and coming back out. I remember experiencing a new way of life. I remember what it was like to be a young, new Christian. And man, that was such a beautiful time of my life. And then all of a sudden we confess sin together. And, and I'm, I'm looking back on my week and I'm remembering, yeah, I have failed here and I've missed the mark here. And I spoke negatively to my wife here. And I've, I was rude to my kids there. And I've done these things like, God, forgive me. And then I receive the assurance of, of, of the fact that Jesus doesn't say that my greatest failures now define me, but his greatest success on the cross on my behalf is the truest thing about me. That his resurrection life is now mine to have. And then we sit under the word. I'm the one preaching, but I'm also sitting under the word with you. And, and, and we are reminded of what's true and what's beautiful. And then we take communion together and then we're sent back out on the Something formative is happening today, friends. And that same thing is happening all week long. You are being spiritually formed 24-7, either formed into the image of Jesus and into abiding and into making your home in God or being formed away from Jesus and into a, a faux version of the good life that's actually opposed to the way of Jesus. So two diagnostic questions for you to think about. Number one, what forces are currently shaping me? What are the things in my life, intentional or not, that are shaping who I am? And then second question, who am I becoming as I do what I do? 
Who am I becoming as I do what I do? So much of this wrestle with abiding in Jesus is just learning to figure out what are the current practices? Where am I making my home? Where am I abiding currently as it helps me become who I am becoming? Uh, One of the things that we have as Christians that doesn't always help us is our desperate need to know, is this right or is this wrong? Now, it's good to ask that question because there are clear rights and wrongs in our Christian journey. But sometimes we ask that question and the answer requires a little bit more prudence. And instead of asking, is this right or is this wrong? We should ask, when I do this, who am I becoming as I engage that practice? Uh, Is watching TV right or wrong? Well, of course it's not wrong, but who am I becoming when I fill my evenings with TV? Uh, Is it wrong to be on social media? Of course not. Who am I becoming as I scroll constantly on Instagram? Is it right or wrong to fill in the blank? Those are good questions to ask, but one of the questions that we need to go a little bit deeper with is who am I becoming as I do what I do? You're an abiding creature. You're making your home somewhere. That's my point. And this leads me to the third thing very briefly. The invitation from this passage, from Jesus to you and to me, make your home in God. And this is beautiful. Notice what Jesus says about the Father. Look at verse one. I'm the true vine, and my Father is the what? The vine dresser. Literally in Greek, that is translated as farmer. God the Father is a farmer. He's not a prison guard. He's a farmer. He's not holding your soul captive, wanting to rob you of life and meaning and joy and pleasure and significance and identity. God the Father is a farmer. And as followers of Jesus, you are his garden that he is cultivating. He's not a prison guard. Notice what Jesus says in verse nine. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you abide in my love. Friends, this is not about legalism. This is about love. This is about finding our truest joy in God. And that leads me to the next verse. Look at verse 11. These things I have spoken to you. Why? That my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Friends, life with God is life in a beautiful, thriving garden. That's why in Genesis chapter three, the first thing that happens when our first parents sin is what? It's the production of thorns and thistles in the garden. Because life disconnected from the farmer, life disconnected from God is actually life disconnected from life. It's where all of a sudden we rob ourselves of beauty, of joy, of flourishing, and we uproot ourselves from a beautiful garden and we go plant ourselves out in a dry, arid desert somewhere. Jesus is not after your reductionistic faux version of Christian happiness where we sit in tight clothing and just do all the right things and are rigid and yes, sir, yes, ma'am. That is not the type of life that he's after. He is planting you as a beautiful garden. His vision of all that he's holding out to you is a beautiful vision. And maybe in the last five years, this has become more uh, true to me. 
and maybe the most significant thing that I've embraced over the last five years personally in my walk with Jesus is that Jesus doesn't just come as the good news. He doesn't just come as the one who through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, ascension, future coming is bringing hope to our world and is the king who has brought his kingdom and is bringing it fully. The one who lived and died and rose again in my place. All of that's true and that is the gospel proper. But friends, also think about this. Everything that Jesus ever said and taught was inherently good news to us. When Jesus looks at you in the eye and he says, hey, my sexual vision is different than the world's, he's holding out to you good news, not bad. When Jesus looks at you and says, your gender, your maleness, your femaleness was wired and designed by me and it was intentional and it matters and it means something. He wasn't offering you something restrictive or repressive. He's actually offering you thriving and flourishing and good news. When Jesus says, hey, I want you to love your enemies, he's not being mean to you. He's teaching you something profoundly beautiful. When he tells you to forgive those who hurt you and sin against you constantly, always, never to not forgive. To not forgive is to not be forgiven. When he teaches that, he's offering out, holding out something beautiful to you. On and on I could go. When he tells you, don't store up treasure in heaven, don't try to get wealthy here, but actually use your wealth, use your money, your resources to store up treasures in heaven by giving away to the poor and serving those in need. He's offering you good news. We could go on and on and on, but friends, God is after creating a beautiful garden, not keeping you in a prison cell somewhere. That's what the spiritual practices are all about. And that leads me to the last and final thing that I want you to see How do we do this? How do we abide? What does it look like to make our home in God in a world that's constantly offering us a home? How do we make our ultimate home in God in a culture like ours? And that leads me to the trellis. I want you to think about the trellis, these habits and rhythms of formation, this trellis that we can build a life off of to abide in the vine. John 15, 10, this is really interesting. Jesus says, if you keep my commandments you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept the Father's commandments and abide in his love. In other ways, in other words, you and I have something to do. That, yeah, the gospel is free and it's all of grace and it comes to us when we're dead and there's no contribution that you and I make to our salvation. And yet, there's work to be done. The Christian life on your part requires action. Yes, it's fueled by grace, it's empowered by the Spirit, but it's not anti-gospel-centered to be a Christian who works hard to abide in the love of God. I love the words of Dallas Willard who had just a beautiful understanding of how grace fuels and empowers effort. He, He says these words, he says, grace is not opposed to effort, it is opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude, effort is an action. Do you see the difference there? Grace, you know, he says, does not just have to do with forgiveness of sins alone. The transformation of the inner being is as much or more of a gift of grace as is our justification, our right standing before God. Of course, neither one is wholly passive. Listen to what he says. To be forever lost, you need only do nothing. Just stay your course. God is not going to pick you up by the seat of your pants, as it were, and throw you into transformed kingdom living into holiness. So friends, some of you grew up in a highly legalistic culture, and anytime you have anyone stand up and say, as a Christian, you should pray, 
As a Christian, you should have moments and times where you read scripture and fast and do the... Some of you have an allergy. Some of you are like, that church is not gospel-centered. You, you have a wrong understanding of the gospel. If that's your perspective, I just want to invite you to a more holistic view of the gospel that God loves you so much that he didn't just want to save you and forgive you when you were dead in sin, but he wanted to throw you into an entirely new way of life. He wants to take you out of the prison cell and put you inside of a garden. And the way that he does it is through these spiritual practices. The way that we abide in the love of God, the way that we learn and rehearse the commandments of Jesus is through these spiritual practices. So think of a trellis. You've seen a trellis on maybe a a winery somewhere or out in a garden. And a vine that's just thrown out on the ground can grow and can produce fruit. But I I don't remember the percentage. I think it's like 60, 70% or more, more fruitful when a vine is attached to a trellis. And that trellis is enabling organic growth to happen. And I just want to invite you to see these spiritual practices like prayer and scripture and fasting and silence and solitude and work and rest and the Lord's day and generosity and all the things that we're going to explore over the next few weeks, see them as a trellis that you and I can build our lives on so that we can make our home in God. These are not a way to curry favor with God. It's a way to curate our heart and reorder our love around who he really is. Amen? So let me close by giving you a few practical things. I want to invite you to do a rhythms and habits audit over the next few weeks. You're, you're doing stuff in your life already. Whether intentional or not, you have certain rhythms and habits in place. Maybe just take some time as a family or with your community group or with your friends and do an audit. Hey, what does my average day look like? What do I do when I come home from work? What's my routine? What's my rhythm? And then just ask yourself the question of who am I becoming as I do those things? Secondly, start small. When you hear these sermons, don't think, all right, I, you know, I don't pray ever, so I'm going to go from not praying to I'm going to build a prayer closet and pray two hours a day. No, you won't. Don't do that. Go from like not praying to like, I'm going to pray on my drive to work for 30 seconds. You know, like start there, start small. Uh, you ever do the workout thing where you go from like never working out to then buying like the Navy SEAL training videos? Like, to, please don't do that to yourself. Start small, right? Uh, like you're, you're going to be so much more encouraged when you go from like, you know, not doing anything to just doing something small. I want to invite you, take the load off. Just do something small. Be specific. Don't use general statements like, I want to read my Bible more, or I'd like to have more times of prayer in my life. Build it out. What is this going to look like? What will my day reorganized around abiding in God look like? Uh, Remember, it's subtraction, not addition. So I'm not asking you over the next few months in the summertime to do more. I'm actually inviting you to do quite a bit less so that you can do the better things. Figure out what you can eliminate and remove from your life so that you can do the good things of slowing down and experiencing loving communion with God. Take into account your season of life and stage of discipleship. If you're a single mom or a mom with little kids or uh, just a crazy heavy work schedule that's unique to this season, please give yourself grace. Like, it's okay to have seasons in our life where we can have a ton of abiding practices and then other times in our life where it's like, hey, this is just one of those seasons where some of my practices need to change a little bit because of my season of life. That's okay. And then finally, keep a healthy balance of upstream and downstream practices. I'm stealing this from another pastor and writer, but the idea here is that when you row upstream, it's really, really hard. 
when you row downstream, it's super easy. All of us have certain practices uh, that are really, really easy for us. Like some of us love to pray and love to read the Bible. Others of us, like prayer is super hard. It's rowing upstream. Some of us, fasting is actually easy. Others, others of us, it's not. What I would encourage you to do is build in your life a lot of downstream practices with a little bit of upstream ones too, okay? So do the things that bring you life and joy and are fun with God to abide in his love, but have some things in your life that I'm working at this. This is a challenge. This doesn't come easy, amen? Okay, I wanna invite you. Would you stand with me? There's something said in the business world that is actually really helpful advice with this conversation. Here it is. Your system is perfectly designed to give you the results that you're getting. When you think about your life as a system, your marriage as a system, your community, your life with Jesus as a system, your system is perfectly designed to give you the results that you're getting. Friends, if you are dead and dry and feel distant from God and feel like you're just getting tossed by all the waves of culture and you're just, you're just not sure where you're at with stuff, your system is perfectly designed to give you the results that you're getting. This is an invitation to you to rearrange and reorder your system around abiding in God. And the reason why we wanna do this is not to earn his love. Friends, we did not deserve to be loved. And yet he has loved us before we were even born. 